Thank you for joining us this morning. It's exciting to be here at the beginning of a new year. We're in the first week of a pretty short two-week series about the Messiah, expectation, and hope. And obviously, we just celebrated Christmas, and we were doing an Advent series leading up to that time. And we were, of course, looking at the two Advents of Christ and the fact that we're living in between those two Advents, Christ's first coming and his return. And so that's going to be our focus over the next couple of weeks. We'll dive into the two Advents of the Messiah, of Jesus. Uh, start of a new year, of course, is a unique time, chance to definitely look back at the last year, you know, reflect maybe on what God has done, reflect on what happened, hopefully be thankful for some of those things. Maybe there were struggles and challenges that, that you went through last year and you're kind of glad to have that year behind you. Uh, obviously, the chance to look forward into the new year and, and maybe be optimistic about things to come. Um, I'm kind of a stats guy, and so I was looking up some polls this week, and a major poll last week was showing that about two-thirds of Americans are optimistic that 2023 will be better than 2022, so that's good. Um, still leaves like over 30% of people that don't think it's, it's going to be better this year. And they cited reasons like, uh, of course, economy and natural disasters and wars and things like that um, that, that made them not optimistic about this upcoming year. But I think about us. What, what are we expecting? What are we looking forward to in this next year? Um, I know that for me personally, I've got a son uh, that I'm expecting will graduate from high school. Got to get through a, a few more months here. Excited about that. I got another son who's going to start driving this year. So, uh, you know, we, we'll get ready for that as it comes up. Um, but there's also things, you know, coming in that uh, I, I'm expecting probably a hit to the pocketbook with some of those things, car insurance and college costs. Uh, every time a new year starts, a lot of you experience this your job, your health insurance premiums, that's the time when those would be going up. And so seeing some of that this year. Um, expectations, they're, they're funny things. Sometimes we're, we're going to get what we expect. Sometimes we're going to be maybe disappointed. Other times we might be pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think sometimes we, we don't get what we expected, but maybe we get exactly what we needed, and we, we realize that after the fact. Um, back in the early 90s, there was this 14-year-old boy, kind of like mullet-haired uh, you know, haired, uh, boy. We got, a, we got a picture of him back there, Jay. Oh, there he is, okay? Back in the 90s, yep. And he, he met this girl, this amazing, beautiful girl, and about two years later, he, uh, he asked her out on a date, and she said yes. We got a, we got a picture of them up there. Oh, there she is, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and there, were, there was a lot of things, I think, that, uh, that I expected um, and things that I didn't expect. I know that on our very first date, uh, we went to this uh, Mediterranean restaurant in Westland um, called Pineland, and it was my first experience with Mediterranean food, and uh, I was sold after that. I, I wasn't really expecting how good that was going to be, but that was, that was awesome. I, that's one of my favorite dishes or, or uh, types of food now. Um, but on that same very first date, uh, we weren't expecting that when we went to that restaurant, her mom was also going to be eating at that restaurant with a friend at exactly the same time. So, yeah, um, not awkward at all for a first date, but... Uh, so a few years later, um, we were married, and, um, and in a lot of ways, I think Emily was, was what I expected. She was fun, um, she was kind, she loved Jesus, uh, all these kinds of things. But at the same time, I think over the course of 23 years of marriage, I've also realized that uh, God gave me a lot more than I expected, and God gave me exactly what I needed in Emily. Uh, I didn't really expect that, um, that she was going to be a, um, a partner that just complimented me so well, uh, a partner that challenged me, 
um, that helped me grow in my faith, uh, that we'd go through struggles together, that we'd enjoy life together, uh, just all these different things. And I think a lot of times God does give us um, exactly what we need, but not exactly what we are expecting. And that's a little bit of our, our theme this morning. This morning, we're going to look at what the Jews were expecting in the Messiah. And I think we're going to see that at just the right time and at just the right place, uh, God gave us exactly what we needed, but not necessarily exactly what we expected. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in Israel, uh, he starts proclaiming the coming kingdom of God, and he's telling people to repent and get ready for the coming kingdom of God. But after some time goes by, Jesus obviously hasn't been accepted by the Jewish leaders as the Messiah. Um, and John is starting to wonder, like, what's going on? You know, what's happening? John, ends up, John the Baptist ends up in prison, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, it says, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And I think this encapsulates the feeling of so many Jews at the time that Jesus was born. They're they're waiting in expectation for this Messiah that is to come. Uh, Maybe more, I think, than at any other time in history they were waiting in expectation. So who was this Messiah that they were waiting for? Old Testament uses the term uh, Mashiach. Mashiach is Messiah. It means anointed one. And it was a term that was used of, of a special person that God was going to use um, in his plan. It was often or sometimes used of kings. It could be used of like the high priest. Uh, but over time, it eventually became used of this, this one specific person that God was going to send. Um, Uh, It was the person that the Jews were expecting to deliver Israel. And at the time Jesus arrived on the scene, I think the Jews were really expecting deliverance. The prophets hadn't spoken to them in 400 years. Those are called the silent years. But between the the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, um, there was this this gap of time. And the Jews have a really unique um, ethnic, spiritual, political identity Their nationality was was tied extremely close to their belief in one God, to their monotheistic beliefs, um, tied to their God-given right to the promised land, uh, tied to their worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem. And so they'd avoid intermarrying with with other cultures. Um, They would have restrictions in place through the law and through the teaching of the rabbis where they would just try to avoid even sometimes contact or interaction uh, with people that weren't Jewish. But they had an extremely close tie to each other. They just had this really strong kind of brotherhood and sisterhood um, that transcended geography because they were spread all over the place. Almost every time our our family travels somewhere, I've got a lot of Michigan gear, so I break out my Michigan gear whenever we travel. And pretty much no matter where we are, you you get some people say, hey, go blue. So maybe not so much this morning. I know that was was rough last night. But that's usually what happens. There's kind of a, a shared bond. Um, And, of course, the Jews experienced that to just a a much higher, more important magnitude. Um, After the the Babylonians and the Persians, those captivities that they went through, uh, they ended up, Jews ended up dispersed all over what was ultimately the the ancient Roman and the ancient Greek world. Um, They weren't all in Israel. They certainly weren't all able to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. But they had synagogues in these different cities and, and countries where they were. And they were maintaining their culture, their traditions, their worship. Um, 
but it wasn't always great. Just as Egypt had persecuted Israel when they enslaved them, uh, just as the Babylonians, the Assyrians had persecuted them, um, even at this time, the Romans in the Roman world didn't always treat the Jews so well. Roman leaders took over rule in Jerusalem. Uh, sometimes they'd share that rule with Jews, especially if those Jews would pay for that, that right to rule. But overall, uh, the Jews were underneath the Roman government, the Roman emperors and governors. And a lot of you know that, uh, that Israel regained its independent status back in 1948, but that, that was a span of like 2,000 years where they were not their own independent state, going all the way back to like 63 B.C., under the Hasmoneans and, and the Maccabeans. And so um, at the time that Jesus was born, Jews for many years had just been living under this oppressive rule. And they'd had these tyrannical rulers. There was Herod the Great, and then Herod had three sons, Archelaus and Philip and Herod Antipas, who is the Herod that we see in the New Testament. Um, and, and that's who we read about. Um, I brought a couple of small books this morning, but one that I've just been a fan of for a long time, kind of an old book, it's called Yeshua, The Jewish Way to Say Jesus, written by Moish uh, Rosen, who was like one of the chair people of Jews for Jesus for a long time. He describes this point in time as uh, the Jews were detesting the rule of Herod and his sons, and they resented Roman rule, and they ardently hoped for the day God would overthrow their oppressors. Like this was what they were waiting for. They were waiting for God's anointed one. They were waiting for the Messiah, who they called the son of David, to overthrow the Romans uh, that, were, that were leading them, to bring Jews back to the promised land from all these different areas that they were scattered, and allow them to worship at the temple. And it would just bring in this time of peace and prosperity for the people. They were expecting the son of David, who would be their deliverer, and their king. That's, that's what they were expecting at the time that Jesus came. Jeremiah 33, I think, pretty succinctly describes what was expected in the Messiah. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet that was writing right around the time um, that Jerusalem and Judea were finally falling to the Babylonians, and he was watching his Jewish countrymen go into exile. He was watching the last of the kings of Judah and of Israel that had been reigning for almost I think 350 years, going back to like Saul and David. Jeremiah is watching all of this play out. He's watching the end of that dynasty. And really to this day, we haven't seen a true kind of political religious king on the throne of Israel uh, on earth. But Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I'll make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He'll do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to offer grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. So God had made a promise to David. This was like 300 years before Jeremiah was writing. And at that time, David, although he was, he was far from perfect, he was leading Israel as a king, uh, trying to honor God uh, in, in a way that, that um, would display God to the world. But as Jeremiah is writing this, the Jews have seen just a string of evil kings. And that's, of course, what's coming. And he's watching the last of these kings. It's literally the next chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 34, where Jeremiah is writing about Nebuchadnezzar sort of at the gates of Jerusalem, sieging it. 
God says, it isn't looking good for you right now, right, in in Jeremiah 33. But he says, I made a promise to Israel that they'll always have a king from the line of David. And there'll be a time when I raise up one righteous man out of that line. He'll be king. He'll bring safety and peace. He'll bring justice and righteousness. It's not going to be a a foreign king. It's not going to be a king from a different family in Israel that's going to, you know, take over, something like that. But it's a descendant of David who would have a heart for God like David did, right? That's what the Jews were expecting at the time of Christ. Someone that was going to become their king uh, from the line of David, free them from Roman oppression, right? Bring them back to Israel, uh, lead them in worship at the temple, time of, of peace and prosperity. Again, this, this same book, Moish Rosen says, this person would be uniquely wise and knowledgeable, upright, courageous, and patriotic, loyally devoted to God, right? That's the Messiah. That's That's the son of David. So they were expecting the son of David, and Jesus took on that title when he came to earth. The very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, Luke's gospel also traces Jesus' family back to David. So Jesus had, had the right to be that king. He was a son of David. Uh, Now, obviously, the Jewish leaders, I mean, there were a few exceptions, but most of them rejected Jesus as the son of David in the time he was there. But many other people, we see this throughout the Gospels, recognized him as the son of David. We see blind men that he healed, calling him that. Uh, We see the Canaanite woman whose daughter he healed, calling him that. We see the crowd as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And we see the children that are worshiping him in the temple as he enters at that time. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus accepted this praise from them. He is the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah that Israel was awaiting. And I just think about it this morning. Uh, Do we view Jesus that way? Right? Do you see Jesus as king, as Lord of your life? Um, As we start a new year, of course, this is definitely a chance to to reflect on that. Who's reigning in our lives? Who's reigning in our hearts? Are are we on the kind of throne of our own lives running it? Or are we letting God be there? Because he isn't going to force his way in uh, to be into that position. We got to surrender ourselves to him. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he didn't just take on the son of David title. He also took on the son of man title. And I think it became kind of obvious throughout the gospels that this was actually like at the heart of Jesus's mission. Uh, He's only called son of David about a dozen times, but son of man is used uh, close to 80 times. And most of those are are Jesus referring to himself. Um, Son of David, of course, emphasized his role as Messiah, as that king to come. But son of man really emphasizes Jesus's humanity. We see uh, Matthew 8.20, where uh, Jesus is telling some kind of potential followers, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I mean, can you imagine the Messiah, the Son of David, King of Israel? He's got no palace, he's got no fancy bed, and even more, right, the God of the universe with no place to lay his head, right? But that's exactly who Jesus is, that's exactly what he lived. He's, he's the son of man and he took on humanity at just the right time and in just the right place. Um, one of my favorite things about studying scripture is looking at prophecy and looking at fulfilled prophecy and particularly prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. That's just, uh, I think it's just such a cool thing. And um, you'll see varying numbers, but Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament 
prophecies just in his first coming. And we're going to look at, at two this morning that Jesus fulfilled related to his birth. But first, I know I've got some kids in here. Where are my kids at? Can I see your hands? Where are some of my kids at? Just I, any not my kids, but kids who are here. Okay, where, are the, where are our kids at? Good. I, I've got questions. I've got to see if some brave people can raise their hand and answer some questions. And maybe you remember these from the Christmas story. But the first question is, where was Jesus born? What city was Jesus born in? Can I get a brave soul? Raise your hand. Wait, right back there. Go ahead. He was born in Bethlehem. Good. That's a good one. Good job. You're very smart. Okay. All right. Now I need another brave soul who can answer another question. What, what city, what town did Jesus grow up in? Where did he grow up? Somebody want to raise their hand and tell me? Okay. And back. In Nazareth, right? Nazareth and Galilee. Good job. Okay. All right, so then here's, here's the really tough question. How do we know that? Does it tell us that in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, or does it tell us that in the New Testament, the second part? Like, hey, brave souls to answer that one? How do we know? Or do we just know because Pastor Mark told us, or Miss Becky told us? Do we know back here? Tells us in the New Testament. Very good. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. It definitely tells us that in the New Testament that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that he grew up um, and did his ministry in Nazareth and Galilee. And so we definitely see that. But it's also kind of cool that we see this in the Old Testament as well. And we're going to look at two Old Testament passages about Jesus' birth real briefly. Uh, first one is in Micah 5.2. Micah writes, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's Micah 5.2 about Bethlehem. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 1, uh, he writes, In the future uh, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And later in verse uh, 6 to 7 he says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He'll establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, Micah and Isaiah were both Old Testament prophets, and they were around the same time in history. They were writing even before Jeremiah was writing, and they're both talking about this ruler to come who's going to unify Israel, right? This Messiah. Um, but Micah says the ruler's going to come from Bethlehem, and Isaiah says that Galilee's going to be honored because of this child that's going to be born and will become ruler. And Bethlehem's not in Galilee, if you've kind of looked at some of the geography there. And neither of those places are in Jerusalem. That was, that was a different place. And that was, of course, Jerusalem would be the traditional home of, of the king, of the priests, of worship of God in the temple. And that might kind of be the place you'd actually expect a, a king to, to hail from. But we know from the story of Jesus that God kind of brings those two prophecies together in a unique way. Uh, Bethlehem holds a huge role in the Bible, but otherwise it's kind of a small, obscure town. So we know it because we read about it so much in the Bible. Of course, the story of Ruth, who was David's great-grandmother, that uh, plays itself out in Bethlehem. Um, ultimately, King David is born in Bethlehem where his family is. But at the time Jesus is born, Bethlehem was probably a, a town of less than a thousand people. It's not a very big town. Um, maybe to, to put that into perspective, the population of Canton, I think, is closer to 100,000 people. 
And I think when you drive down Ford Road going to Ikea, there's like a thousand people right there. So that's about what Bethlehem is. Uh, no, you would probably think a ruler wouldn't come out of somewhere like that. This, this promised king would probably come from somewhere more like Jerusalem, right? But the Roman census had brought Joseph back to that town with his family because he's from the line of David. And so God brings this prophecy in Micah to fulfillment that the, the Messiah from the promised line of David would be born in that same humble town as David. And then Isaiah says God would honor Galilee of the Gentiles through this child to be born. And Galilee had a lot of Jewish people, but um, they were actually in the minority in Galilee. Uh, And that's why it's pointed out and called all the way back here um, in Isaiah, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And so at the time Jesus was born there, there would have been a lot of different languages that were being spoken there. It was a little bit of a crossroads in in the Roman world, maybe on a little smaller scale than Jerusalem might have been. But it's where Jesus grew up, right? In Nazareth, in Galilee. He lived and worked there as a, as a, a carpenter. It's where his uh, disciples would have all come from. He would have preached in the synagogue there and in surrounding towns. Uh, would have been traveling there during his earthly ministry. Um, the majority of the recorded miracles and parables and teachings of Jesus are there in Galilee. But 700 years before Christ comes, Isaiah talks about this and says, hey, the good news is not just for Jewish people, it's for the Gentiles too, it's for non-Jewish people, it's for you and me, people in this room. Um, it's for everybody. Galilee shows up, I think, more than 60 times in the New Testament. It's a, it's a town that's just talked about all the time. In fact, when the, the women disciples who are from Galilee, when they go to the tomb at first, the angel tells them that the first place the resurrected Christ is going to go is back to Galilee, right? That's the first place he's going to go. In Matthew 28, 7, he says, Go quickly and tell his disciples, He's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. God truly honored Galilee with the Messiah who was to come. And I just love seeing the way that God orchestrated this, that God brings every word of his to fulfillment. That's one of the reasons we can trust God. Um, this verse in Isaiah 55, 11, I love, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve, uh, the purpose for which I sent it. Every promise God makes, he keeps. Um, this should just be such a comfort for us today, right? We can dive into the scriptures. We can study his promises. We can cling to those. We can hang on to those. And that can bring us peace in a, in a crazy world. Um, The Micah and Isaiah passages are also cool in that they don't just address the birthplace of the Messiah, but um, they also point to the fact that the Messiah is so much more than a man. And so we've got to mention that as we see those. But Micah said his origins are different from every other person's. His origins are from of old, from ancient times, uh, hinting in an unusual way that the Messiah existed even before his own birth. Um, And how could that be, right? Unless it's God come in the flesh, which we know. And Isaiah says that this child who will be a born and will eventually rule will be called everlasting father and mighty God and his reign will go on forever. Uh, the Messiah would be a man, there was no doubt of that, but would also be God himself. One of the amazing truths of scripture. 
Now, I just want to pause here and mention, I think most people in here today probably believe that Jesus was a real historical person. That's why you're here today on New Year's morning after staying up late, right? You're here because you know that Jesus was real. But a lot of people don't believe that. Now, in America, it's, it's pretty good. We're at like over 75% of adult Americans would say they believe that Jesus was a real historical person. But there's still a good somewhere 10 to 25% that don't believe that. And in other less Christian areas of the world, it's much less, 50% maybe in Australia and England in some of these recent polls. And uh, Christianity is, is trending to become a little bit less prominent in our own culture, the way the studies show. So we could even see um, that, that declining here as well. But it's just worth mentioning that we've got so much evidence, both from inside and outside the Bible, it says Jesus was a real historical person as we study these things. And, and the biblical evidence you're probably more familiar with, um, scholars uh, view the, the Bible as a reliable ancient historical document, right? Even though they might not agree with all its conclusions, they might not agree with the supernatural elements and some of those things, but they'll say that that's a real historical document. Those places existed, those people existed. And so the fact that there's so much detail about Jesus' life and ministry and the places and times that can be verified, um, that just gives a, a ton of reliability um, to the belief that Jesus was a real historical person. But there's also documents outside the Bible that you might be less familiar with, and these can help fill in the blank for skeptics um, that don't just want to accept the, you know, the Bible alone as that uh, source of truth. Uh, picked up this book a few weeks ago at the recommendation of uh, Pastor John Morales over at Oak Point Nova. It's called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. Kind of a nice smaller one um, that can be a quick read, but uh, he gives us three of the most famous um, non-Christian sources that were writing just after the time of Jesus. Uh, the first source is Tacitus. This one's probably my favorite, but Tacitus was a high-ranking Roman official. He was a Roman senator. He was on the council, and he was known, known for historical writings in a lot of different areas, but he didn't have any love for Christians. Um, he called Christianity a superstition and a disease in his writings. But at the same time, he verified the existence of Christ, saying... Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Uh, Tacitus obviously had no reason to promote Christianity because he really despised it, but he acknowledged that Jesus was real and he gave very specific times and places and leaders. And he even noted that Jesus' followers were holding to their beliefs even under uh, their own death. Um, so that's the first one. Second one uh, is from Pliny the Younger. Um, I, I don't know much about Pliny the Older, but we got Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor, and he asked Emperor Trajan for advice in dealing with the Christians because he was also not a big fan of the Christians. Um, and this, again, adds to his reliability. He's got no reason to be fabricating uh, these things, but he acknowledges that there were just huge numbers of Christians that they believed that Christ was a God and that they were willing to hold their beliefs even under torture and death. Uh, and the third one is Flavius uh, Josephus, and he was an important Jewish historian. And in, there's a couple of accounts, and in some of his accounts, it's disputed on whether they were real accounts or not or if they were added afterwards, uh, but one that is definitely not disputed. He mentions James, the brother of Jesus, called Christ. And he mentions James being brought before the Sanhedrin. 
And like a lot of, uh, like all, you know, three of these writers, Josephus is writing when many eyewitnesses were still alive and these things could be verified. And he, he's showing that decades after the death of Christ, even Jesus' own brother in the heart of Jerusalem still believed and was preaching and being persecuted uh, for that belief. So Jesus was a historical person. He, he walked this earth at time and places that we read about in the Bible. And maybe you'll have a chance to dialogue with somebody about the reality of Christ. Maybe some little tools like that could help you in a dialogue. But I also just encourage you, even if there's some things like that, you don't remember that in a couple weeks you have that dialogue, your own personal experience with Christ is probably the most powerful tool, excuse me, uh, to share with other people. And so use that um, because that that experience uh, just, just shows that Jesus is real. Now, I can't remember when I first came across this, but Christ came at such a unique time in human history. I mean, certainly from a a spiritual perspective, um, Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6, that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, So in God's design, it was exactly the right time. But he also came at, at a time kind of from an earthly historical perspective that was just ripe both to fulfill those prophecies and to be able to spread the gospel. Uh, the common languages like Greek that were being spoken, and the advances in seafaring where people could just get on boats now and travel all across the world, and historians, you know, recording really accurately. Uh, Just so many different things. Um, And then, of course, being able to uh, be born in a town like Bethlehem that at the time was Jewish, but not too much later um, was, was very Muslim, and even today is very Muslim, was able to fulfill that prophecy there. All right. Now, ultimately... Jesus' first coming defied some of the expectations, I think. Even after the resurrection, the disciples are asking Jesus in Acts 1-6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they were still expecting the typical son of David. And good reason, right? We saw the, the scriptures have promised it. And so they're expecting that. And God keeps his promises. But Jesus gives them a two-part answer. He says, part one, it's not for you to know the times or the dates by which the Father is set Uh, has set by his own authority, meaning there's more to come in God's plan later, but what you're expecting isn't happening right now. But part two, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus the Christ was not, I think, exactly what was expected. We see that, but he was exactly what humanity needed. God didn't just say, here's the Messiah, right? Just like you thought. He said, no, here's what you need, right? You're you're sinful, you're broken, you're far from me. You need a savior to come and uh, bring you back to me. Not this kind of deliverer, this political deliverer, I think, that you're expecting. And Jesus did a ton in his first coming. Um, I think his words in Luke 19.10 really capture that mission of the Son of Man. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost, right? That's why he came. And during this last week, I was just reflecting on some of the things that Jesus did. He did so many different things when he came. Um, and as we kind of draw towards the end there, there, there were five quick passages um, that, that I'll read to you. Christ gave us a model, number one, what it means to love, what it means to serve. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. That's one of the things Christ did. Another thing he did, he went through life fully human, right? He can identify with us, our relationships, our trials, our temptations, even like sorrow and pain and death. The author of Hebrews says, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let's then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christ won the victory over Satan and freed us from death. Hebrews 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ freed us from the control of sin in this life if we surrender ourselves to him and the consequences of sin for eternity. Revelation chapter 1 says, To him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And lastly, of course, Christ died in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. Romans 5 says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I mean, these are just a a few of the things he accomplished. When you start to think about all of them, it's really just overwhelming. So I would say maybe two things as we close. Number one, take some time this week to be thankful. I think the end of a year is a perfect time to do that. It might have been some things you're anxious to get rid of from the past year, but take some time to be thankful. Uh, Reflect on what Jesus did when he came. Maybe go back, look at some of those passages, but reflect on what he's done for you in your life. Um, prayer is not one of my strongest disciplines. I don't always spend enough time in prayer. And, and when I do, sometimes I jump right into praying for what I need and what I want. Uh, but I needed to spend some time this last week just being thankful to God. And then second, maybe you think about setting some resolutions for the new year, some things you, you want to see in this next year. And, and think about what are you expecting from God this year? Uh, what are you wanting from God, right? Uh, is, it, is it just solve some problems, make life easier? Is it that? Or is it to draw into a closer relationship with him this year, to know him better, to allow him room to give you what you really need? Um, And what steps can you take? Maybe more time in the word, maybe more time in prayer, maybe looking at some, some other resources and diving deeper into some learning. As we close, I, I just want to come back to the passage we started with this morning. John's disciples had just asked Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And here's how Jesus responded. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. What an answer. Jesus says, yes, I'm I'm the Messiah. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we just need to believe, just need to put our trust in him. Um, as we close this morning, we'll, we'll close with a final song here in a few minutes in Christ Alone, which is a chance to just reflect and, and worship our Savior. But if you're here this morning and some of this is new to you, um, we always have a, a prayer team that's down up front, and I'll, I'll be around up front as well. And uh, feel free to come down at the end of service. There'll be people that would love to talk to you. Um, if you're here this morning and you need prayer, the prayer team will be up front. They would love to pray for you after service as well, after our closing song. Uh, let's close in prayer. Jesus, we praise you. You are mighty God. Thank you for for taking on humanity, uh, coming to earth for us. Um, Thank you that what you did uh, was just what we needed. We anxiously await your return, and we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.